Connecticut and Massachusetts. ZM Homes buys houses. Sell your property to the local guys. Needs repairs, updates, maybe foreclosure or inherited? No problem. We got you. Google or add us on Facebook at ZandMHomes.com. It's Bexie's Musical Podcast. As the son of two therapists, there was never a time in my life when my parents brought me to work and said, Sonny boy, one day this will all be yours. Going into the family business was never really an option for me. I had limits to how much I could tolerate listening to people and their problems all day. But of course, for some people, the idea of following in your parents' footsteps is a pretty intriguing idea, especially if one of your parents happens to be a towering, legendary figure in his field. In 1949, a writer from Billboard magazine made the audacious suggestion that perhaps they should rename what had been known as race records and rebrand them as something a little bit more commercially acceptable. The name he chose was Rhythm and Blues, and the name of that young writer was Jerry Wexler. For the next 50 years, he would become one of the giants in modern recording by joining Ahmet Erdogan and turning Atlantic Records into the one of the most important and influential record companies in history. This is a guy who produced or signed such people as Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Etta James, Bob Dylan, Led Zeppelin, Dire Straits, and literally hundreds and hundreds of others. In other words, the legacy that Jerry Wexler built is an incredibly imposing one. So when his son, Paul Wexler, decided he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, that was no simple task, except Paul Wexler had an outstanding career as well, producing or engineering work from Van Morrison. Bob Dylan, The Go-Go's, Dire Straits, The Grateful Dead, Fleetwood Mac, B-52s, and even Bad Brains. In other words, Paul Wexler's legacy casts a pretty long shadow, too. But to his credit, Paul Wexler has done something that his father never quite achieved, and that was put out his own record. Paul's very first solo record is entitled Swept Away with his band Wex Wax. It's an album loaded with rock, blues, Americana, and R&B. It's an album that would have made his father proud. To talk about that, his career, and about his father's extraordinary legacy is my guest today, producer, engineer, Paul Wexler, on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, you know what? Reading up on you and reading up on your family and your history, there's a lot to talk about, so it's really my pleasure more than anything else, so... Thank you very much. Oh, it's yeah, that's great. You know, so um, uh, where do you want to start? I swear to God, I'm going to wind up calling you Jerry at some point. <laughs> well, you know, it, it won't be the first time it's happened to me. Let's just put it that way. I'm, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> well, first of all, I want to congratulate you on your new record, Wax Wax. <laughs> but your own, but your own music comes from a you know, pretty interesting and kind of unusual beginnings here. Tell me about this. Well, I, I'll talk about the, the the band in particular. Okay. Yeah. I played instruments a little bit when I was a kid for a few years, both the trumpet and the piano, but I couldn't really become interested in it in the way that I needed to be to pursue it. And now we go through 20 years in the music industry. We're producing a lot of interesting records and also working in other capacities with some great artists that I managed to help. And I, I at the age of 49, um, I was uh, not working in the business anymore. And, and I thought, well, what am I going to do now? 
And I thought, well, you've been running songs in your head for your entire life, but you can't actually deliver a single song in any way, shape, or form. So I decided to start playing an instrument. I, I started with a trumpet, but then I switched after a year to the piano. I got myself a $300 Yamaha. And I told myself, if you play it for at least an hour every day for the next year, you can upgrade to a better keyboard. But if you don't, <laughs> you might as well just forget it because you're not serious. Right. And, and indeed, I did, I did start really working out on it. But you start getting to the point where you can actually transpose what's in your head musically onto the keyboard. And then, oh, you, yes. then you start playing in uh, nursing homes. I started in nursing homes because um, the, 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 the gig scene wasn't quite that vital when I was when I was coming along like in the aughts in, in New York City and for new bands. And so I just said, well, I need to play every week. So I found these places where I could play a new set every week. They were in Western New Jersey. And um, these people were a very Appalachian based. And you have hmm. to understand this was like 17 years ago. And so there were people in these uh, nursing homes that were in their 80s and they remembered the 40s. So I got to play a lot of music from the 40s with a, some of it like old country, like uh, 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 Bob Wills and, and, of course, Hank Williams. And some of it were like standards. And, and you know, I, what I realized is that this is the same mix of music that people like Little Richard and Chuck Berry and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, who invented rock and roll, played before they invented rock and roll because they had to start somewhere. It's funny. I mean, in, in a way, you could probably get to the point where the people in these nursing homes were the people who were listening to your dad's records when they first came out. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. That is. So, I mean, I can talk about my dad a little. He was the, the greatest, one of the greatest record men of all time. This, of course, most famously as Aretha Franklin's producer, produced Respect and, and so many of her great records in, in the first 10 years of her, uh, of her career of reaching the pop charts or the, and the R&B charts. But he signed so many major artists uh, including Led Zeppelin, you know, there wasn't just R&B signings. And, uh, and he had a tremendous mind for music, although he wasn't a musician. And I absorbed so much of, of how he thought about music just by being around him. Well, you know, I mean, I think back to, to my own childhood, you know, both my parents were mental health therapists and, uh, but going into the family business was never really an option for me, but <laughs> But when you're uh, when you're a kid and you're seeing what your dad is doing, uh, in some regards, he's you know he's just dad. And on the other hand, he's also Jerry Wexler. He's this enormous, you know, legendary name. As a kid, did you did you understand what his role was in in music funny, and popular it's culture? Funny you, it's funny you should ask that because when I was in elementary school in 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 Great Neck, Long Island. They used to have folk singers come by and they'd they'd sing, you know, little houses on this hillside and and they'd sing a lot of folk classics, including Down in the Valley. And very shortly after that, Solomon Burke's version of Down in the Valley became a big R&B hit. And it was uh, my father arranged this session and picked the material, <clears throat> but it was produced by Burt Burns, the great Burt Burns. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing this record and going, oh. So this is what my dad does. He takes these songs and makes them sound a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that uh, it, it all depends on who you find to make that music better. 
Well, and that was his skill, you know, as someone who could match material to artist, um, he he was almost, you know, one of the greatest of all time. I mean, he's also unparalleled, I mean, him and I'm mean, already and kind of unparalleled and, and not only discovering new talent and applying what you're talking about, but, you know, Atlantic's roster of artists was very, very diverse. It, like you say, it wasn't just R&B, but, you know, other bands too. And when you go back and look at the kind of ear that it takes to look at an artist and say, they've got it, we can do something with this, or, you know, they're not ready. That takes an enormous amount of, of I don't know what the talent would be. I would think it would just, it'd just be like a, a very strong ear. You put your finger on something, although we tend to think of the work in the studio as the most interesting because they're actually involved with the creation of the records and directly working with the artists. As far as a record company goes, the most important skill is the one you just mentioned. Yeah. The ability to recognize talent before it, it succeeds because that's how a record company can make money. And, and let's face it, if you guess wrong, which everyone does a, a fair amount of the time, though that's money spent that you never recover. You know, so you have to be able to pick that new talent. And it's also a matter of timing, too. I, I was listening to another interview that you had done and you were talking about your dad really waiting for Aretha Franklin to become available. She had been doing gospel records for, for quite a while, but your dad could see something in Aretha that said, you know, she could be doing popular songs and crushing it uh, if That's we right. just mean, waited he, long enough for it to happen. He, he saw her being able to apply her gospel and her, her great vocal chops, you know, and, and the great John Hammond, who had been handling her at Columbia and, and been doing a lot of jazz with her as well, um, although she sang this jazz amazingly well, it, it and, and these records are still great, but it, it wasn't really her path to, to reaching the public, you know, and my yeah. father, who had had these connections uh, in Muscle Shoals and, and down in Memphis with Stax Records, he saw that, you know, he saw what what could work for her as far as bringing an artist that could top the R&B charts and also enter the pop charts. So when he gets to the part, the point where she does become available from Columbia, I mean, was it was there a, was anybody else seeing what your dad was seeing in her? Or? He jumped on it before anybody else was even thinking about it. That takes a, a tremendous gift and and a good deal of business savvy because I mean, you're talking about a generational once in a lifetime talent. I went. I also went with my dad one time when he was uh, checking out a band. There was a club in South Hold on the end of Long Island that was on a barge, and it was called the Barge. And they had a band that had a residency there, managed by the great Sid Bernstein, who had put on the Beatles show at Shea Stadium. And this band was the Rascals, mm. and they were unsigned. And I went with them, and I'm looking at this band, and I, I com they completely knocked me out. I was like, oh, my God, these guys are amazing. And later, I heard my father, uh, let's put it this way, he was having a discussion with Sid Bernstein about whether he would be allowed to sign them immediately or not. And Sid wanted to get other labels in, in order to, well, I guess the term is get a little bit of a bidding war going, which of sure. course the rascals were good enough that they deserve that. And, and fortunately with uh, Ahmed Erdogan's help, they were signed to Atlantic, you know, and the rest is history. Now, as far as your career goes, or at least your talent, uh, goes obviously your dad's a major influence and his you know his talents may be you know passed down from generation to generation do you feel you have the same ability to recognize that level of talent or is that just 
you know, just an individual thing that, that just your dad I mean, had? I mean, look, I, I don't try to get into a race with my dad in any field of, of, of the musical endeavors because it's a chump's game because, you know, he, he is one of the greats of all time. And, 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 and I've got my talents, but I always said I'm going to just pursue what I pursue and not think of myself as being in a race or a competition with my father, because that that would be foolish. Now, sure. I know what my skills are, and I have spotted some bands before they were signed and, and advocated for them. And one of those bands was Devo, you know, when I was out in uh, Los Angeles in, in the 70s working for Warner Brothers. I saw them in the clubs. I saw them at the Starwood, and I just immediately started running around the company and going, we should sign these guys. They're amazing. And uh, I mean, again, I didn't have any sway or ability. I, I didn't have a title or a signing ability, but uh, but it, I was the first person to push for them at the company. Let's just put it that way. It's interesting you bring them up because I've, I've interviewed Jerry Casale before uh, of Devo. Yes. Their beginnings are a really fascinating story, especially as you know, like as you talk about. There's a bidding war not only in who they sign with, but there also winds up being a bidding war as far as who produces them the first time. They had a choice between Brian Eno and Iggy Pop and David Bowie. And they wanted Eno. They, yeah. I can tell you that Mark really wanted Eno because there's some of Eno's synths, uh, synthesizer solos when he was working with Roxy Music. I know Mark was completely knocked out by some of those, you know. So when you heard them for the very first time, I mean, I, I remember, you know, watching them on the, on the TV for the first time and just, you know, my jaw was dropping. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. When you see them for the very first time, what was, what was your first impression? I mean, my first impression was here was a fully formed act with a unique approach to music and, and their own very, I would call it almost Dada-esque, you know, a Dada-esque, mm. like surreal sort of um, influences that they pulled in there. I mean, that chant, Are We Not Men, um, was originally from this movie called The Island of Lost Souls where Bella Lugosi were torturing animals into becoming human. And, and, and so they, they, they pulled all sorts of influences from different places and, and their videos, everything about them was fully formed. I remember seeing them going, holy moly. I yeah. mean, and plus they, they were exciting. I, listen, I grew up listening to fifties groups, you know, like little Richard, Chuck Berry, my, my idea of rock and roll is that it has to be exciting, you know, because that's what it's all about for me, you know? Yeah, obviously, you've worked with enough artists during your career. Has there been anyone else that uh, that kind of rose to that level for you? I mean, because, you know, again, Devo's a pretty unique, you know, example. Well, I mean, I can tell you as far as in the studio goes, you know, I got to work with Van Morrison on the, uh, on the Wavelength, Wavelength. Yeah. record. I See, it's a very a tortuous path that led me to this assignment. I had put together a Grateful Dead compilation record. It was my first record called What a Long Strange Trip It's Been. And it was a sort of a summation of the Warner's years um, uh, that I put together in 1977. I did it myself. I got no input from the band or anybody. I art directed the record. I was 24 years old at the time. And uh, the record is still being sold. And it sold over you know, over a million copies. I'm sure it's close to a million and a half copies. I mean, literally, it's made the band millions of dollars. And uh, I'm very proud of it. And so Van Morrison 
and Warner Brothers were, were not getting along because he had a couple of records that, that were giant, like Moondance. But then after that, he cooled off, but he was still getting the Moondance money. And so there was a lot of resentment because the label will blame the artist and say, well, the material isn't sufficient for, for us to promote it and get hits. And of course, the artist will blame the label. Sure. You're not properly promoting my work. And and so that Van was going to go through his outtakes and just, you know, finish them up and, and deliver a record of outtakes. And that would be one of the records that gets him to finish his contract. And everyone agreed with it. You know, we'll let you do it. So I helped him go through his material. We were working at Brothers Studios, the, the Beach Boys studio in Santa Monica. I met Dennis Wilson, which was so great. It was so freaking cool. <laughs> and um, I mean, he's the coolest Beach Boy, let's face it. You know, right. I may not be the most talented one, but he was the coolest one. And so we went to a studio in England, in Oxfordshire, called The Manor, which Virgin Record owned. We put on the first song, and he's going to do the vocal. Van's going to do the vocal. And the, the song's in the wrong key. It, it's it's it was recorded in a key that was too high for him to really handle the song properly. And he gets very frustrated and he goes, ah, this is like whipping a dead horse. And so he, he goes out of the studio and I thought, wow, this project might be hitting the rocks right now. And so I took him aside and I said, Van, you know, right now I know you're in the red with Warner Brothers and it might seem like you're spending their money. But the truth is with your catalog, and I meant Moondance, um, ultimately, you're going to recoup, you know, and so what that means is right now we're spending money. That's your money. That's going to be deducted from your future royalties. Right. And I said, well, let's just do something. Let's put a band together and, and just use the time. Don't waste the time because they're going to charge us for a bunch of this time we've booked. And so he, we did. We woodshedded musicians for the next two weeks. I helped him go through a, uh, uh, find a bunch of musicians and he picked the ones that he some mostly he had worked with before or that he knew very well. And the wavelength record was cut. And I remember when he sung wavelength, that was one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in my life. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just came out of him like a force of nature. And, uh, and after, after the song was finished, he knew he had something and he danced along the edge of the recording console and kicked the empty two-inch tape box across the room. And <laughs> and he said an expletive. He said, blank, this punk rock, blank. See, what he was trying to say, because back then in 77, in England, the old school musicians felt threatened by the rise of punk rock because it was a whole new thing that was attracting very young people in England. Sure. But what he was saying is, I'm still exciting. I'm still rock and roll. I can still deliver no matter what anybody says. You know, he's he's always had a reputation of being somewhat, uh, I don't know, confrontational, maybe disagreeable at, at, at points. You know, it's funny. I never had a problem with him. And we were together for month after month after month because I had a really simple philosophy. He's Van Morrison. And, and I'm just a guy, basically. <laughs> and so my job is to help him as much as possible and 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 to try to help him achieve whatever he's trying to achieve and so you know i'm not i was not like i was kissy assy or anything like that i just was 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 focused on giving him a hand part of a good producer is you know part nurturing part psychiatrist part your cheerleader it's all those things and then sometimes you have to just put your foot down and be authoritarian 
with a guy like Van Morrison, I would imagine that work that wouldn't work. But you know, with the other artists, I imagine you know, there's all kinds of things that you have to do. Well, I I, I, I can tell you that on um, mostly I've tried to maintain uh, an atmosphere in the studio where the band is happy, because if the band isn't happy, they're not going to deliver their best performances. Yeah, you know, and 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 my father was the same way. Now, I mean, you know, he did run things but I, I can tell you that aretha if she didn't like the material that he was offering to, to to do she would reject it and he couldn't say no you're every once in a while it would be okay let's just do this one please and and but mostly mostly um he was the same way he would he was not a martinet in the studio he mostly tried to let the artists feel happy about the what they were doing in the process and i'm a great believer in that too because if if the if if like for instance when I did the Go Go's record when I recorded the first version of We Got the Beat, it came out on Stiff Records, it got to number fourteen on the on Billboard Dance Chart, it got a lot of club play, and um and got them their deal with IRS and set up their career. I'm very proud of the record; it still sounds great. And um, when we were doing the vocals, I'm afraid that Belinda had been out the night before having a good time. And and so we we had to um we had to just work around that you know and so we did but it's not like I said hey man you shouldn't have you know I don't believe in confronting artists it's just not a uh, it, it tends to not work out you know <laughs> I'm I'm glad you brought up the Go Go's because in preparing for this interview I I went back and I listened to that original version to compare you know what the 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 album version would would be or the or the the, the later single of it and. Yes. It's really interesting how different it is. And it's it you know, it just sounds so much more, you know, raw and, and tougher. It, you know, it's funny that you have you know Van Morrison kicking over tape because he hates that punk shit, but but the Go Go's really were a punk band. And a lot of people They kinda, really were. Yeah. And it's funny you should, you should mention that because I took them into Amigos Studios to cut the basic tracks, which was the Warner Studio. And you know, this is a studio from James Taylor and uh nicolette larson and and randy newman and a lot of great artists you know uh, recorded there and this was the first punk rock outfit that ever i brought in there and when we went in the staff started looking like scared they were like oh what are they going to do to us <laughs> and i said these are just young these are young women who are, are going to make a record they're not they're, 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 <laughs> This is just a style that the, the clothes they wear. It's 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 a rock and roll style. They, they, they're musicians. They're artists. They're they're, they're not going to break up your studio, and, and they didn't, of course. There were a couple of projects that you did. You mentioned uh, before projects that you had done uh, with your dad, and and observed some of the things that that he would do with artists, and you apply you know some of those things that you may have learned. But one of the things that you and your dad both did together, you worked on a couple of Bob Dylan albums together. Well, look. To be honest with you, my involvement in in those in those two records, when my father finished the record, when it was time for the mastering process to occur, he always had me sit in with a mastering engineer so that and I would, you know, I I would work with the mastering engineers and get have some input into what they were doing. Of course, they were doing the mastering. I didn't I didn't do the mastering, but I did have some input, and and so that was that was my involvement with the. Uh, you know, with the Dylan records, I wasn't actually there when the record was cut. Okay. You know, listen, this is the truth. Most of the stuff I did 
almost my father and I only really did one project together. And this was after I'd done so much work in the business myself, you know, uh, we worked on the, the, the soundtrack for the Richard Pryor movie, Jojo Dancer, that movie, we put the soundtrack together. Richard had rejected two or three soundtrack attempts and the movie couldn't come out. And so we got it done. And um, with the help of the great Herbie, Herbie Hancock and, uh, and that we did together. But almost everything I've done in my career, I managed to um, wrestle up myself. You know, I, I made a decision at an early age that I had to be my own man. If I was too close to my dad, if we spent too much, if I tried to base my career around his career, I would never know who I was or, or what I was what I was managing, what I was accomplishing. And it's it's a tough situation. Listen, I knew when I got in the business that there would be a lot of people who would be like, hey, why are you here? You're only here for one reason, because you're Jerry Wexler's kid. And I was like, I was like, OK, you're going to get a certain amount of grief and then just ignore it and keep doing what you do, whether it's a straight job in the business. I mean, my first job, well, my first job was actually in radio, you know, where I worked, did some work for KSAN out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But um, but my first job at a record company was doing quality assurance, making sure the records didn't skip and the, and that the cassette tapes didn't sound under underwater. I mean, I went to I went to most almost every major press, pressing plant in America, you know, um, and and it, and it wasn't romantic. But but I did I did get a lot of good work done and helped the quality of records. And worked very closely with Neil Young on uh, on on transferring his work to the to the the medium of vinyl because he was very particular that the record would match the acetate, you know, which is the initial cut where you where you set it up on on a on a record sort of, you know, uh, format. And it and it took me a, a while to to get it to the point where I could get him to approve stuff quickly. And I finally got to the point where he actually let me approve stuff, which means he mm. trusted my ears and he trusted me not just to shove it out the door, you know, because that's what was in the company's interest to get the record out. And he gave me three gold records for helping him. But he's one of those guys that I think I think on a, on a business level, he he's very protective of his own work. And I think if he finds that someone's doing right by him, he's he's very, very appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah, no, I listen, you know, it, it was a it was an honor working with him. I'll tell you, the first time I ever spoke with him, the decade record had just come out, that three record set yeah. that came out in 77. I was very new on the job. I had just started it, uh, 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 or maybe it was 76. And I was very new on the job. I just started it a, a month before. And so I get a call and it's from his producer, David Briggs, who produced so many of his great records and in, in that mid 70s period. And he goes, uh, Paul, this is David Briggs. And I go, yeah, okay, David. And then all of a sudden I hear a noise like the phone's being thrown against the wall. And then Neil's on the phone and he's going, this is Neil Young and I want my records right now. And I, I left out a word there. That's okay. And I said, and I, said <laughs> I said, you know, Mr. Young, um, of course you can have your test pressings immediately. But, you know, I was thinking if I listen to them, if there's some obvious defect, like it's skipping or there's some terrible noise on one of these records. Why should you be bothered to listen to him when, when they're not even close? And he goes, Oh, okay. Now <laughs> <laughs> you see, this is what I'm trying to say. You deal with them in a way where you actually say, I'm looking out for your interests. Yeah. 
Well, I would imagine that's that's exactly what a lot of these guys really want to hear. But I think you're right. I think it does pay dividends in the kind of performance you get out of people. I mean, you, you've heard stories, you know, horror stories about you know producers and uh, and and artists and, and engineers and people in a production room where it's a real toxic environment, and then you just wind up getting a lot of a lot of bad feelings, regardless of how the end result winds up being. I mean, that, that happens you know, quite a lot. It's an, and that's unfortunate because you'd like to see everyone get out of that process the best they can get. You know, it's a tricky situation because some artists have a vision and they know how to execute that vision in the studio. I mean, I, I would call Prince like, you know, one of those artists who doesn't need a producer to tell, didn't need a producer to tell him anything. You know, some artists, however, don't have that much of a sonic vision of 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 what they need to do, and so it it you're right. There, it, it's a matter of trust. You know, um, if if an artist is picking a producer that they trust, and they, it's really important to hang out with the artist, to listen to them, to go to their live shows, to go to a rehearsal studio with them, and work in in the rehearsal studio on the way to the recording. If you feel like there's things that need to be tightened up, like I I rehearsed the Go Go's for for a week before we went in the studio, you know, because and then they get a feeling that you have some idea about what they need to do and mm. and how you're going to help them because, you know, other if you just walk into the studio, that 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 can be a formula for disaster. The way recording happens now, uh, as opposed to you know when you were at your at the busiest part in your career. The technology has changed where if someone does not give you a performance that's 100%, you can just go and, you know, fiddle a couple uh, knobs and buttons on your computer and auto-tune the thing correctly. You know, I, know what you're, I know what you're saying, but my feeling about it is that the best thing is to record things properly and to get a great performance. Yeah. Because if you do that, then you have something genuine, you know, you have something with feeling and, and you're not creating an artifact, you know, after a certain point. Um, although, again, there's no arguing with success, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'm, I'm telling you, but you have, do have a point about the technology. When I, when I did my record, Swept Away, I recorded it in Oakland. Um, I, I, had a, I had a great engineer, Gabriel Shepard, and we worked at 25th Street Recording, which is the same place where Taj Mahal recorded his record that's just coming out. Oh, now. okay. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Gabriel engineered it. And so we worked with Pro Tools. And Pro Tools is a, record, a recording program. It's, 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 it's digital. It's on, it's, you know, and you, and you basically, the thing that's great about it is it remembers everything. So you do a mix. It used to be to do a mix, you had to plug in the patch bay. You had to move the faders. You had to get everything set up properly. And it was very difficult to duplicate that setup the next day if you had to break down, if you couldn't keep it set up overnight. The thing about Pro Tools is you can you, you do your mix and then you can go home and listen to it for a week and then go back and Pro Tools remembers that you're back at the exact same spot with each instrument on each fader, all the EQ and 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 and, and outboard settings you know, are, 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 are done. And so it, it really helped in, in doing the mixing to get it to the place where, you know, I, I felt comfortable and I felt like it was the best it could be. But prior to the technology being available, like for example, vocals are like one of those things that you, you oftentimes have to record and re-record and over and over again until you get that, that right 
that right performance. Aretha Franklin, Van Morrison, you know, these are these are world class singers who I don't yes. know what kind I don't know what kind of adjustment you well, could ever possibly tell- make. But there's got to be other people in there in, in your history. We you, you hear them sing in the studio and you're just like, oh, my God, I can't believe that was as great as it was or they are as, as great as they are. Yeah, I mean, I, I've worked with a, I've worked with a lot of punk rock bands and, and some of them had some of them had really good vocals um, like this band out of L.A., the weirdos, you know, but um, <laughs> but they, they were a great they were a great band. But but uh, and uh, and later the guitar player was in Thelonious Monster. But um, but but the, the the thing is, when Aretha did her records, you know, she was singing live at the piano. In other words, she, she cut her rec her vocal as she was. They were doing the takes; mm. they, they were not done afterwards. You know, it's that's a very that's a very rare a rare, a rare phenomenon. I'll tell you, I was in the studio when the uh, the the reggae band Black Uhuru uh, recorded their one of their great records the youth of englington and that was they're they're a great vocal group in that jamaican tradition of vocal groups you know and 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 and, and they had a great uh, female singer puma and uh after they cut that i mean the, it just gave me chills seeing them cut that record you know because it was just so amazing you know it was one of the great reggae records and i was very lucky to be there for the recording of it you mentioned some of the, the the punk bands that you had done, obviously the Go Go's and and uh, the Weirdos. But you know, there's a, there's another. I, I was on Discogs looking at your discography, and there's one that leapt out at me because I think this is such a great underrated band. And, and it's and you're know, looking at what your history was. This is like a like a surprise. Like oh, them too, Bad Brains. What was your involvement with with them? You know, I did some recording with um with two members of the band in the studio. Um, there's a J- Jamaican vocalist named Michael and Kruma and HR and Doc and Daryl, the bass player and the guitar player, uh, the guitar player and the bass player from the brains had kind of separated for the moment. And, um, and Michael and Kruma was the vocalist. And I put them in the studio with Steve Ferroni. Okay. Clapton's drummer mm-hmm. with, um, uh, with Bernie Worrell, who worked with the, the talking heads and parliament Funkadelic and, and, um, it, it just was the session was amazing, you know, and uh, and 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 the record got some considerable play in, in in clubs in Jamaica and stuff like that. But but as far as the bad brains themselves go, I I, I was friends with their manager and he, and he was always trying to get me to a position where where a record company would let me produce a bad brains record. But we never quite got there. Uh, Anthony County and he really worked for that band. But um. But they were doing a show at the Rock Hotel in New York City. Uh, after, this is after HR came back together with the band. And um, I mixed them live at the Rock Hotel. I, I, I did their live sound for this show. And uh, it was like riding a hurricane, okay? <laughs> I mean, because Doc and Daryl, the drum, the, ba- the guitar player and the, and the bass player, were, were played with like sheets of sound, waves of sound. And to try to keep the balances right as they just, you know, um, their amps were like, you know, really loud. And uh, to try to keep the vocals and the drums where the drums are pushing it, where the vocals are on top of it. It, it was like it was like riding a hurricane, you know, but it was great. It was <laughs> it was one of the most fantastic things I ever did. For a period of time, I, I know you had kind of stepped away and retired from uh, from the business. But last year, 
the Mutants released uh, a, a record, and that was like the first thing you had done in quite a while. What was it about that project that made you want to come back and uh, and, no, and no, work no, on it? No, the thing is that the thing is that Mutants record was not a was it was a rec- it was a recording that that I that I had completed. I I'd done I'd done a bunch of the production on it back in the eighties, okay. And this was a re-release. This was not a new record, okay. Right. But um, but yeah, I was very pleased with uh, with a bunch of my work with the Mutants, and uh, and I saw them recently um in the Bay Area, and yeah, the you know Fritz, the lead singer, <laughs> the guitar players, they were still they were so happy to see me, and you know we were in the studio. They had been they they. they, they they had had hadn't been working that much in the year or the six months before we went in the studio. We were in the studio for a full day, and I took the band aside and I said, "Man, I don't know if we're going to get it, you guys. I mean, I got to be honest with you. I think you need to go do a bunch of gigs and a bunch of rehearsals, and then we're going to have to go back in." But then over the ne- over that day, over the next day, they started. They they somehow coalesced. Their 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 muscle memory as a band came together. And they began to get great takes, you know, yeah. and so and so the record got done. I had to go back to my job at Island Records and Chris Blackwell, the great Chris Blackwell, one of the greatest record men of all times, who signed you too, for instance. He was like, well, Paul, you know, we need you in the studio here in the Bahamas. And uh, if you can't come soon, you know, your job might be a little bit, uh, you know, he he, he indicated that I might get fired. Yeah. And so I had to tell I had to tell the band, listen, I got to go back to my day job. And uh, and the great snake finger, he finished up the album, you know, but um, but I'm very pleased with what I did with them. And and so are they, you know, they they know that when, when you see someone years later and they smile and they're happy to see you, you know that they were happy with what you did. I'm glad you mentioned Island Island Records. There's a uh, I, I believe is a, a documentary about uh, about him coming up. And he's like, uh, you know, that's 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 one of the you know, great success stories in music is is Island Records. What was it like to 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 work there? And I mean, does the reputation of the place is it an accurate one, or, or did you find it to be something different? I mean, I'll tell you, I I worked as the house A and R guy at Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas. Now you may be thinking, wow, you're in the Bahamas. It's so great. You're working in the Bahamas. In two years, I got to the beach twice. <laughs> I mean, I was working. It was yeah. work. You know, I had a lot of things I had to do to, to help keep the sessions running. Uh, when Joe Cocker recorded there, I gave him a couple of songs that he put on his record that he did with Sly and Robbie, Sheffield Steel. I gave him a Marie, the Randy Newman song, and I gave him Many Rivers to Cross, you know, mm. and he did great versions of those. And I got to see Sly and Robbie work a lot and see that was brilliant. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, Island Records, it was a it, it was one man's vision, but it was very, very well executed and put together. You know, um, I I remember uh, they had a DJ come and remix a bunch of the B-52s material, you know, Rock Lobster, mm-hmm. some of the biggest records. And he had one side of a record done. And uh, Gary Kerfurst, who was the Talking Heads and the B-52's manager, he calls me into his office there at the studio, and he goes, Paul, we need another side for this record. And I go, well, Gary, I, I don't really think like a, a disc jockey. You know, I, I don't really <laughs> seg and cut and do stuff like that. He goes, well, just take some of the songs that, that we want to put on the other side, and we'll have an engineer extend them, and you just need to overdub 
some things on their record. And I go, is the band going to be there when I overdub? And he, he goes, no. And I go, well, aren't they going to hate whatever I put on their record? <laughs> and he goes, no, no. And so I had worked with Tin Huey, a, a progressive rock band out of Akron. And of, of course, uh, the waitresses came out of Tin Huey. But also the great saxophone player, Ralph Carney, uh, who's passed now, um, uh, he ended up with Tom Waits uh, and played on a bunch of Tom Waits early material. But I brought Ralph in to play sax on Hot Lava because I thought, what's the sound of a volcano erupting instrumentally? What's the what would be the audio equivalent? I thought well, probably a saxophone, you know, because it goes because the sound sort of comes gushing out of a saxophone. And uh, it worked out so well that the, the record went platinum and uh, the B-52s used Ralph on their next two years of touring. That's and that awesome. was one that was one of his big breaks. That's awesome. So yeah. is, is there a, a project that you've worked on that, you know, in hindsight now you kind of look at with uh, with a, with a, a real great sense of pride? Is, is there one that sticks out for you or have we I've already touched on one of those? No, I mean, all of all these records I've talked about, I'm very proud of. You know, I'm very proud of the Grateful Dead record I put together. I mean, the, the Grateful Dead's organization is still selling it. And this is 50, almost 50 years after I put the record together. I mean, that's, you know, to me, that, that to be able to create something that has that kind of longevity. Um, all these records we've spoken, spoken about, I'm, I'm very proud of. You know, I mean, Wavelength, just because you see i helped facilitate the record occurring you know i didn't really van i didn't really have to do much once i helped van find the musicians the the the, the project kind of just proceeded you know because because with the right people the right material and and van knows what he's doing he at that point he had been around the block a bunch of times yeah you know so he knew it but you know it was it was funny. I just want to tell a, a quick story. A friend of mine had hit me to a bunch of the punk bands when I was in 77. And he said, the one band you have to see is The Clash when I was in England in 77. Mm -hmm. So in December of 77, I drove down to the Rainbow Theater and uh, I had two tickets. And so I brought one of the one of the ladies that was working at at the at the studio. The studio was attached to an English manor house called the manor in oxfordshire and and so this is people could be in an english manor house with a giant table and you know big fancy rooms and they could pretend they were lord whatever you know and and <laughs> and so i i brought this the scottish lady to the show because i had an extra ticket and she said well sure i'll go see him and so we got back and you know i didn't want to be too gushy about the band because like i say there was this these touchy feelings about an English rock and rollers about punk rock because they of, of the of the the classic guys because they felt like it was sort of the new thing that was maybe maybe replacing them yeah threatening you know yeah threatening them and so Van said how was it <clears throat> and I said oh yeah it was pretty good and the Scottish girl interrupts me and goes what are you talking about you loved it you wouldn't <laughs> shut up about them all the way back in the car for an hour <laughs> and how did he take that. <laughs> well, he was okay. He was okay. <laughs> well, well, good because you don't want him kicking you across the room like he did to that box of tape. <laughs> uh, you know, again, I, I, I never had a problem with Van. Yeah. And ten years after we did the record, 
he took me out to dinner in, in New York City, which shows me that he didn't have a problem with me either. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I, I have to ask because, you know, these stories are, are, are fascinating. I know we, we barely scratched the surface on some of these things, but have you ever been approached or, or thought about, you know, writing a book about these stories? No, 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 I, I, I don't, I, I don't think so. Um, you know, look, there are a, a lot of people that have worked in studios that have a, a much bigger uh, a body of work than I do and a much more important one. And uh, I, 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 <clears throat> I don't, and also <clears throat> people would want me to write stories about my family, about my dad. And um, <clears throat> uh, how can I put this? All the interesting stories are edgy stories. You know, I've told you some stories that are a little edgy today, right. okay? But the edgy stories about my family, about my dad, about his career, I'm not sure I would want to talk about them in, in public that much because he's my father, you know, and I respect him still and I love him. And, and, and so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if I thought I had enough to say about myself, I might do it. You know, but um, I'm not sure I do, to be honest with you, as far as a full book goes. Well, I, I, I'm not going to argue with you, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think you're selling yourself kind of short because, you know, there are many people that don't have these kinds of stories. And, you know, to to grow up in that environment and then to 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 edge out your own reputation uh, is not the easiest thing to do. And you've done it. And, you know, I think you have to be applauded for that because. It is not easy to work outside the shadow of someone that comes before you, in your case, your father. But I think, you know, if you if if someone looks at what you've accomplished without being the son of Jerry Wexler, it's it's damn impressive all on its own. Yeah, I've done OK. You you've know, done I'm, very OK. I, I'm pleased and proud with what I've done. You know, I, I, you know, I, I have no you know, I, I'm good with with my career, yeah. you know, and and uh and, and like you say, you know, um, except for this Richard Pryor uh, soundtrack, um, it's almost nothing I did that has any connection. Maybe one other project that has any connection to my father whatsoever, you know, um, uh, as far as in the studio and that sort of thing. You know, I got my job at Island Records myself. You know, he did help me get my foot in the door at, at Warner Brothers, but I already had, I already knew Mo Austin. You know, I, I had met him when I was going to school in L.A. Uh, five years earlier, and we got along. And I'll always be uh, grateful to him, you know, that he gave me my first job at a record company. Paul, these these stories have been uh, fascinating, and I, and I do appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk about some of these things. And, of course, uh, Wex Wax, uh, the name of your band, the album is called Swept Away. It's it's excellent. Very good. Uh, very good work on that. And, and I appreciate you joining me today. I just want to mention real fast, we had 250 downloads of the single, We're Going for a Ride, Yeah, worldwide. I mean, now that's not bad considering a little independent promo outfit sent it out. <laughs> that's, pretty, no, that's, a, that's a pretty good start. Well, thank you, Bax, and thank you for your time today. I, I, it's a, the pleasure is all mine, Paul. Thank you very much. All right. Have a great one. You too. The name of Paul Wexler's band is Wex Wax, and the new album is called Swept Away. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. Thanks to ZM Home Buyers for joining the effort. You can reach me in all the various social media places and email me at baxatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.